What's up, beautiful world and beloved listeners? What's up to my amazing patrons? You all may be wondering why I'm posting the episode so late in the week, and you may have noticed that I took down the episode that I had up for one day. Uh, I did post as usual on Tuesday morning, uh, but I took it down uh, Wednesday. And so you may be wondering why that happened. So I woke up yesterday morning to a hostile DM uh, sent by the guest whose interview I had just featured in my latest published episode. So she was furious with me that I had included a speech by the investigative journalist Max Blumenthal where he shares his opposition to medical intervention mandates and urges people across the political spectrum to come together to resist the mandate of medical intervention. She was furious that I included this four-minute speech in the same episode where I interview her. She stated that I acted unethically in publishing this episode and demanded that I take it down. So I abided by her wishes and I took the episode down. I also want to say unequivocally that the views that I express in my segments and my skits do not reflect the views of my guests. I will not be reposting her interview where we talk about the Kellogg strike. This is the end of the road for this guest in the Barbarian Noetics podcast. Our paths permanently diverge right here and right now. At the end of her scolding missive, she implored me to interrogate my own beliefs about vaccine mandates. I took her admonition to heart and have been interrogating my beliefs as to where I stand. After much consideration, prayer, research, and meditation, I can say with clarity and conviction that I stand with the indigenous Bolivian workers and trade unionists of La Paz and El Alto, some of whom are marching with medicinal plants and uttering prayers against vaccine mandates. I stand with the healthcare workers of the majority black French neo-colonies of Martinique and Guadalupe, whose allies in the working class have occupied the legislature and brought the islands to a halt with their ferocious opposition to vaccine mandates. Many on the islands are comparing these mandate, these forced injections with France's slavery era and insist on their own sovereignty in making healthcare choices for themselves. I stand with 65% of young black people in New York City who have now been systematically segregated from society by choosing to maintain their bodily autonomy and make their own choices about irreversible medical interventions. I stand with the workers of Berlin, of Melbourne, of Sydney, of Wellington. I stand with the workers of Vienna, of Paris, of Brussels, of Madrid. I stand with the workers of Lisbon, of Verona, Italy, of Athens, and of Tehran. I stand with the workers of Beirut, of Sofia, Bulgaria, of Prague, and of London. I stand with the workers of Bucharest, Romania, of Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, and of Cyprus. I stand with the workers of Lima, of Buenos Aires, of Quito, of Manaus, of Chicago, and of New York City, all of which are protesting in the streets against forced injections by the state. 
And yes, I stand with the Canadian truckers who have organized and gathered in Ottawa to protest these mandates. And I should add that many of these Canadian truckers are Sikhs, women, and people of color. The idea that all the truckers are white and the completely absurd idea that this is somehow a white nationalist thing is propaganda being foisted on you by the medical cartel, people who have consistently lied this entire fucking time. And if you're swallowing that narrative, you've been duped and you've been propagandized. I can hear through the ether a screeching Twitter user that's screaming at me that, what about the white nationalist flag that was uh, being displayed at the trucker rally? And my answer to you is, that was a federal agent. So that's a counterinsurgency tactic, and it's very easy to send any old asshole in with any kind of flag, and then you take a bunch of pictures, you have that person cause a scene, and then that's an avenue for the completely intellectually incurious and captured corporate media to then run with that story and try to smear the entire movement as having something to do with that. It's absurd to point to that as evidence of anything. And also, every single group of people has certain lunatics. But this movement, is a, it's containing a broad swath of the Canadian public. And I encourage anyone who doubts this to take five minutes of your time and look up the speech that Dr. Julie Panessi gave to the crowd at the trucker rally in front of Ottawa. Uh, it's a very moving speech. Julie Panessi was a professor of ethics at a Canadian university who was fired because she would not submit for ethical reasons. <laughs> How ironic is that? A professor of ethics was asserting her ethical principle to not be co coerced into any medical intervention as guaranteed by the Nuremberg Code, and she was fired for that. She gave a speech at the, the rally in front of Ottawa. I encourage anyone who doubts the character and just wholesomeness of that movement. It's people coming together from the entire, all sides of the political spectrum in support of the working class, in this case, the Canadian truckers who have been single-handedly keeping the supply chain going throughout this whole shit show, you know, just about as essential as it gets. The convoy was like 70 miles long. But anyway, that person with the flag was a federal agent. It's called a strategy of tension, counterinsurgency tactic. All right, enough with you, screeching Twitter person. Get out of the ether, please. All right, thank you. <laughs> I stand with the workers of the world in opposing medical intervention mandates, of opposing forced injections by the state, of opposing the violation of the Nuremberg Code. I urge my friends who consider themselves to be part of the left to join the global medical freedom movement. By choosing forced injections over freedom of choice and informed consent, you are isolating yourselves on an ever-shrinking ideological island, and you are alienating the rest of the working class in the process. Workers around the world are primed to struggle against global capital, and by smearing them and judging them, you are pushing them directly into the arms of the right. Right now, I see a massively swelling uprising against the medical cartel and the totalitarianism of big tech, big capital, Wall Street, and the industry lobbyists posing as our representatives on Capitol Hill. 
To my friends on the left, join this fight or get out of the way. You're on the wrong side of history. And your silence is an especially virulent form of cowardice that is not only weak, but also useful to the sociopathic bureaucrats who seek absolute control over our bodies, our minds, our thoughts, and our souls. I stand with the workers of the world against forced injections by the state. I stand in support of the Nuremberg Code, which insists on informed consent of any medical intervention, and when there's any risk, there must be choice. They be greasing their hands Shitting on the people while they stacking their bands While they say we all legal They don't look at us as people All they see is our land Believe in the cedar We can leave it to beaver True don't motherfucker man We need a real leader Middle fingers to the colorblind No disrespect But if you don't see color You don't see me neither Step in line man We'll be fine, fam. Yeah, we ready for war. Don't cross the line in the sand. You'll be lying in the sand, boy. I die for my land. Real talk. Look, I stand with the warriors. This land is who we are. We can let you destroy us. Until the people said, yo, bro, they can employ us. Look, man, it's not like I haven't noticed. Tiny house, what up? If water is life, please fill me a cup. So I can spill it on your face and wake your dumb ass up. Enough is enough, numb nuts, wake up. Yo, fuck Kinder Morgan, here's a Kinder surprise. Indigenous resistance, man, we got nine lives. We put a life on the line, not a lifeline. I'll be damned if I see another broken pipeline. I just want to let you guys know that the next two segments are rants I delivered riding on my bicycle. And, uh... These I'm sharing with you guys because they come from the heart and though, uh, you know, I get a little spicy and I get a little scrappy, uh, this is, this is me and I've now taken out all other factors of this show and I've given my disclaimer that my views do not reflect the views of my guests. So now this is my opportunity to express myself and for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And I actually succeeded in not reacting out of anger. I really let myself think and and sit with this. And what I've discovered is just like this bubbling up of so much passion. And so, um, you know, this is my response to uh, being accused of being unethical. Um, And, you know... I'm letting it rip, so to speak. <laughs> so I just wanted to give you guys a heads up. Uh, th- these next two segments are uh, spicy meatballs uh, delivered on my bike. <laughs> All right, thanks. Hey, I just want to say make sure you stay tuned to the end as well because after the Rantaroni and Cheeses, which they takes about 35 minutes because <laughs> I do a couple different rant- Rantaroos, um, but after that then I... Uh, then I post the episode just without the interview. So you get the whole episode, including the cold open that I made for it and the skit that I made for it. And um, I'd read uh, a couple articles about the Aztecs um, because uh, I'm, I'm, I want to be learning more about um, these ancient societies, especially of Mesoamerica. 
So that's going to be a theme, running theme, and I'm going to learn more about the Inca society as well, uh, the Mazatecs, the Olmecs, um, all the ancient Mesoamerican societies. So I do uh, uh, have a couple articles and a short video about uh, the Aztecs and specifically their really incredible canaled city of Tenochtitlan, which existed. It was founded in, I think, like 1321 and then uh, it was thriving and expanding until the, the fuckhead Spaniards destroyed it in 1521. So anyway, just want to let you know there is a whole episode, just no interview. So make sure you stay tuned to the end. All right, love you guys. Bye. What's up, BMP family? I love you guys. It's been a long time since I've done a, a voice memo rantaroo, rantaroni and cheese on my old bicycle. I think the last time I did it, it was before I had my electric llama, I think. I think I was on my aluminum llama the last time I did a on the bicycle rantaroni and cheese. So it's been a minute, but uh, I still got it. I got the juice. And tonight, I got more juice than usual, friends. I'm a little peeved, I'm a little peeved. <laughs> and uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm tired. I worked all day, because I'm a member of the working fucking class and I work my fucking ass off in this fucking country. And when I have my quote unquote days off, I work my fucking ass off. All I do is fucking work. I work seven days a goddamn week and I barely have enough money to keep a roof over my head. And I'm actually very thankful that I make enough to keep a roof over my head because every day I pass people that don't make enough to keep roofs over their head and it breaks my heart. And because I wouldn't do well on the street, I would go mentally insane like immediately because I am like I'm not like this paragon of mental health. You know what I mean? Like I, every day is a new struggle where I have to make sure I keep like an equilibrium. And so that's what brings me to tonight's rant. So I'm going to be biking through Phoenix College ranting, <laughs> biking past the COVID testing site on Phoenix College, ranting into my phone. So thank you guys. But, you know, it boils down to this like I was so this is probably I'm probably gonna put this rant after my intro so you guys know already what happened with uh, my guest and you know I woke up this morning to an attack you know it was it was over Instagram DMs but it was an attack uh, being told that I'm unethical and a hundred a hundred percent unethical and what what else did she say uh, like irresponsible and unethical like really like kind of that's like that's a big thing to throw at me you know what i mean like i make mistakes all the fucking time for sure as does everybody as does everybody including people who accuse others of being unethical they also make mistakes maybe sometimes they act unethically so you know, there's lots of ways the situation could have been handled. And all day I've just been like working my fucking ass off, serving customers, entitled customers, uh, you know, and thinking about this. And it's like, okay, so she disagreed with the speech that I included in the podcast. That's understandable. And, you know, like, I get it. That's fine. But like, okay, rather than uh, calling me basically telling dictating to me that I'm gonna censor my own show which I did I did that because um, you know I don't this is actually my show <laughs> so like if I don't want you on my show you're not gonna be on my show so I don't want you on my show so you're off my show so I erased you from my show now this is my show 
Now I get to talk. So how this could have been handled. I took a 40 hour mediation class. Uh, it was right after I had a mental breakdown uh, when I was being exploited. I was working for this horrific nonprofit in this hellhole called Everett, Washington. It's outside of Seattle. It's a really miserable fucking place. And this nonprofit was horrific. And like every nonprofit I've ever worked for, they just expect you to be a whipping boy for them because because of your goodwill. You have goodwill and oh, the mission is so important. And so the people who rake in the money that's donated and then siphon off the excess for themselves, they just expect you to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week, no gratitude, keep throwing more tests. So I had a mental breakdown and I took a mediation course, a 40 hour mediation course is basically a way to stave off total mental collapse. <laughs> and so I learned a lot of things in the mediation course. And one of the things I learned is that there's something there's when you come to the negotiating table to mediate, the prerequisite is that you have to come in good faith, good faith negotiation. If you don't come in good faith, then the negotiation is a bust from the jump. You might as well not meet at all. You're wasting your time. If there's not good faith, it's called bad faith negotiation. And then that's when people manipulate and yell and scream at each other and they don't listen. They don't take in what the other person said and they do ad, ad hominem attacks like you're unethical and all this shit because I included a speech by uh, an investigative journalist in the same episode. I deigned to include a speech in the same episode that I, I put you and that somehow that uh, you're so afraid of people thinking about, you know, why don't you announce to the world your stance on vaccine mandates then? If you're so afraid of the world knowing what you feel about vaccine mandates, fucking say it. You should have told me, been like ahead of time. Like I figured that she took a cursory glance at my episodes and she saw the one that said anti-mandate, not anti-vax. <laughs> and she could tell that I was anti-mandate, but you know, so I put this speech Max Blumenthal's speech, I re-listened to it this morning because I was like, is this speech like really offensive? And I just didn't realize it. Like, it's not offensive at all. He's talking about bringing people together. He doesn't say a single solitary word about the fucking jab. He's just talking about the state forcing people to get an, a foreign substance injected into their body. That's what he's talking about. And that's what I think is a massive overreach and all the arguments so she admonished me to, um, she admonished me to uh, interrogate my views. So, so I've been interrogating my views and you know, I've been looking, researching, trying to find articles that defend lockdowns and defend mandates and none of them make any sense to me. There's the completely infiltrated uh, Jacobin magazine telling me I'm a Nazi if I oppose mandates. That doesn't seem like a very productive way to build solidarity amongst the left by telling people they're Nazis if they oppose mandates. Especially when people all around, which this, Max made this point in the speech, people all around the world are, are protesting mandates. I think I might be repeating myself now because I talk, I'm not gonna talk about this in the intro, all the people that I stand with uh, in opposition, but like, so, you know, I've been interrogating my views and I feel even more strongly, <laughs> which like, you know, does that mean I'm just digging my heels in? Like maybe, but the thing is, is that this, so, okay. One of the reasons why I'm so peeved about this is because I have an anxiety disorder and I, every time I release an episode, I have like a, basically a panic attack. And the reason being is because I really go out of my way to be fair 
and I also like really like go out of my way to like treat my guests well and that's why I introduced the guests you know I said a lot of nice things about Mel in this episode if she even listened I don't even know if she listened because she accused me of spending the whole quote first hour ranting about vaccine mandates the segment about vaccine mandates is seven minutes long <laughs> sorry there's a car deciding what they were going to do uh, the, the segment about the vaccine mandates, I introduce the speech, I take three minutes to introduce the speech, and then I play the speech, it's, which is four minutes, so it's seven minutes long. The rest of the time is giving a really nice intro and talking about how I'm so happy to have this guest on, that I'm just trying to like do my part to like build working class solidarity, like as a fucking cracker idiot in Arizona, just like trying to do my part. And are they honking at me? No. Um, and, you know, so I wanted to get her, she reported on the Kellogg strike, so I wanted to get the inside scoop about the Kellogg strike, and now that interview is being taken down, she told me to take it down, so now that's being taken down, so now you guys don't get to hear about the Kellogg strike, unless I work my ass off and do another episode about the Kellogg strike on my own time, you know, which maybe I will, but basically strikes work and they they won concessions and that's really good and two-tier systems are fucking bullshit and anyways it's just like it's it's I've reached like a little bit of a boiling point today because I feel like all day every day I just go I'm just trying to live my I'm just trying to survive as a worker in this country in late stage cap just literally trying to survive trying not to have a mental breakdown trying to make enough money to keep a roof over my head and keep myself fed with decent food trying not to be like poisoned all the time by all the toxins and I'm just trying to fucking live and everyone is so fucking obsessed with all their own problems all the time like every like I'm I'm not not everyone like I have like like I feel like I have a really good listenership I love you guys and I appreciate you guys I'm not saying ever but I think probably you guys can relate to this a little bit so many people are so hung up on their own shit it's like they can't pull their head out of their own ass they're just sniffing their own farts all day and telling you about the farts that how bad the farts stink and it's like dude we all have our own fucking shit you know what I mean like you're not unique everyone is dealing with fucking shit and it's like I just wish that people could have a little more like empathy and compassion. So anyways, this brings me back to like how this situation could have been handled differently. She's so incredibly triggered and offended because I had a speech against vaccine mandates in the same episode as where she uh, had an interview. Okay, first off, if you felt that strongly, you should have told me ahead of time. should have been like, what's your stance on vaccine mandates? Because I'm so highly triggered that if you include a speech against vaccine mandates, I'm going to call you 100% unethical and like attack you first thing in the morning when you wake up so just like give you a nice little burst of anxiety like right when you wake up you know I'd be like okay well cool probably you shouldn't even be on my podcast then because I have an entire episode called anti-mandate not anti-vax uh but you know whatever but like so this comes back to the good faith versus bad faith negotiation in good faith negotiation you assume each party assumes the goodwill of the other So in that scenario, you would assume that I wasn't trying to step on anyone's toes. I wasn't trying to piss anyone off. I I certainly wasn't trying to sneakily uh, suggest to the world that you were anti-mandates. But why didn't you offer to come back on the pod and talk about it? Let's have a discussion about it. You know, let's let's talk. Or another, maybe you don't want to come back on the pod or you don't have time to come back on the pod, which is fine. You could have just asked me to 
repost the episode with a disclaimer saying that the views of my guests do not reflect the views of my segments, you know? And I could have been very specific about it, been like, I have a segment, uh, I feature a speech by Max Blumenthal because I personally resonate with that speech. You know, I, I, in the intro, I even like bare my heart and soul. This is like the third, fourth, fifth time this has happened with the pod where like I bare my heart and soul and then people attack me for it. Like I bared my heart and soul in one of my uh, like kind of like free association paragraphs about the human immune system. And then people are like, are you vaxxed? All this, and it's just like, God damn, dude. So like, I kind of like bare my soul and I'm like, uh, you know, I feel politically homeless in this country, but this speech <laughs> kind of resonates with where I'm coming from. And, and it's like, yeah, like, I guess I, I guess it's, I should feel politically homeless because <laughs> I fuck anyways. So I could have just, you know, made that disclaimer. I would have put it right at the beginning of the show. Like I said, I'm extremely like conscious. I'm so conscious of my guests and presenting my guests fairly and being fair to my guests that like I literally have like a basically an anxiety attack every time I release the episode. But it's really important to me to do this show. And also I'm building the podcast and I have a dream of supporting myself in the podcast, you know, and so I keep doing it. But like it's not easy. I'm not here to like I'm not here. I'm not trying to get like your sympathy or like be complaining, but it's just like it's hard. It's difficult work. And I work my ass off. And I put out an episode every week while also working full time, while also doing freelance copy editing, while also doing freelance ghostwriting. I have like 15 projects all at the same time. I hardly have time to have a social life. Like, and you know, a little bit of good faith would be nice. A little bit of good faith. But instead, it's uh, pull this show down immediately. You're unethical. And then I responded like I made. Sh- I did not want to like, you know. I'm always like cordial. Especially when I first read something like that, I'm like, I'm not going to respond right away like I am now. Because the only reason I'm saying this now is because I've thought it over all day. <laughs> and I'm, I'm actually, even though I'm worked up right now, I'm saying this with a very like clear mind and clarity of purpose. Because again, this is actually my show. So if I don't want you on my show, you're not going to be on my show. Simple as that. So you don't want to be on my show. I don't want you to be on my show. So this is the, this is the end of our... <laughs> You know what I mean? So now this is about, this is my show. So now I get to express myself and this is how I feel. And anyways, uh, I, I do, I sometimes get a little self-conscious, like maybe this is a little bit too much, but hopefully, I don't know. I just think this is, imp- it's important to share and it's important to always come to the negotiating table in good faith. And, you know, if you're really interested in actually building a working class solidarity in this country, you should probably have good faith with people and, you know, try to like work with people instead of just basically dictating to them. Oh yeah, but then the kicker was after I respond really cordially and I'm like, okay, I'll take, I'll take you out of the episode. And I didn't mean, I said, I didn't mean to upset you. And, uh, you know, um, also I mea culpa, which I'm this, I'll be repeating myself cause I'll say this in the first intro, but absolutely I should always make that disclaimer that the views because like you guys know my skits and segments are completely absurd half the time sometimes I make a point but most of the time they're just like really absurd but I do talk about like I guess I make controversial statements because that's what makes for interesting podcasting like if you're not being controversial at all that's going to be a really boring fucking podcast and the whole point of podcast is like it's 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 like it's an opinion show like that's really what like a podcast is if you just have opinions that you, you're just agreeing with your guests and you're just having echo chamber conversations, that's going to be really boring. So anyways, 
I should have said that the views in my segments do not uh, do not um, reflect the views of my guests. I should have said that, you know. So I, I said that to her too. That I'll I'll make sure that I put that. I'll say that so that no one thinks that you uh, oppose vaccine mandates, since that's so, so incredibly important to you that you that you make sure that the world knows that. So it, instead of you just telling the world that, you want me to like have to fuck up my own schedule and take down the show, which fucks up the algorithm, and then take a bunch more time to re-edit you completely out of it, and now, you know, it's like, fine, I'll do it, but, like, I just, I feel like the situation could have been handled a variety of different ways. We could have been, like, having a productive conversation. Why do, why do you think that it's so awesome for the state to forcibly inject foreign bodies into people's, foreign substances into people's bodies against their will? Like, why do you want to force the indigenous Bolivians in El Alto to get shots they don't want to get? I want to stand with the indigenous Bolivians protesting against the mandates. I don't want to stand with the Bolivian government trying to mandate the indigenous Bolivians against their will. You know what I'm saying? Like, anyways, I think I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Uh, <laughs> so, it had been, been a while since I've done a little rant, a little bicycle rant of Rooney and Cheese, so... This was, it was a doozy. It was a doozy, folks. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Love you. Bye. What's up, BMP fam? It's the second night in a row coming home from work. It's cold as fuck. So, you know, I'm like, how can I warm myself up? Rantaroni and cheese, that's how. And I'm still super worked up, super worked up over here. Uh, so I'm just like examining, like, why am I so fucking worked up? And it's not about any one particular person that triggered the cascade of emotions because of what it represents. It's not like, so I want to make that clear. This is not like a personal thing. Uh, I don't hold, like, I don't have, like, a grudge like that, um, you know, I have a certain, certain kind of feelings about being blown off schedule-wise and acted like it's, like, people acting like they're doing me a favor by coming on my show. It's like, I don't need that. Uh, that's not why I'm doing this, obviously. I'm not doing this to, like, become some sort of, like, lefty YouTube celebrity. I'm not doing this to be, like, in the in-group, obviously, because I'm not. I'm not in any... I'm a, like I said, I'm in a political tent city. I'm not, I don't, you know, no one. I'm like a socialist who is completely disgusted with socialists in America right now. <laughs> so anyways, uh, why am I so worked up? Well, so there's this thing I keep hearing over and over from people on the left right now, and it's that they don't want to wade in. They don't want to wade into the debate. They're intentionally sitting on the sideline and they're like bragging flamboyantly about it like i'm intentionally not uh, wading into the vaccine debate and it's like when i hear that i'm sorry but i just hear cowardice like at least admit if you're agnostic this is kind of a big deal this is sort of important you're talking about the violation of the nuremberg code like, this is a huge deal. You're talking about, uh, and in the lockdowns, that was an unprecedented policy choice that resulted in unmitigated suffering for the working class. One in five small businesses had to shut down, while the 10 richest men in America, like, quadrupled their wealth. And that was a 
that was not just like something we slept walked into that was a specific policy choice with the specific goal of waging war on the working class and so people on the left who supposedly are supposed to be defending the interests of the working class are either sitting by not wanting to wade into the debate because they're afraid of what their other fucking lefty people are going to think of them or i don't know what the fuck they're afraid of what the Demo people that vote for democrats are going to think of them some of the worst people in the world and it pisses me off they did a survey this is a tangent but they did a survey of people that vote for democrats and it was like 30 percent of the people surveyed uh said that they would support the government taking away children of parents who don't get vaccinated. Think about, I mean, that's, so that's like the type of authoritarianism that we're dealing with here. And if you want to be an authoritarian, then at least own it. Then at least say, I am an authoritarian. Don't pretend that you're an anarchist and then be an authoritarian. That's bullshit. And I'm not going to like, you know, I'm going to call you out for that. And it's like, I just hate the whole like, oh, I don't want to wade in. It's like, what are you afraid of? Like, what the fuck? I mean, if you have a podcast, the whole point of having a podcast is to have an opinion. That's like, it's, an, it's a, that's the, that's the game. So it's like, if you don't have an opinion, at least be honest about you don't have an opinion. Be like, you know, I'm not sure. This is like a very confusing thing. And then we could have a constructive debate where we could present each other, present arguments and facts and evidence and have a productive debate but if people refuse to even engage and just uh, hurl ab ad hominem attacks you know like jacobin magazine saying you're a nazi if you oppose mandates then that shuts down debate and that's actually doing the work of the three-letter agencies it's doing the work of the deep state it's doing the work of the establishment so you have people on the left being useful idiots for the establishment and it's embarrassing so everyone on the left who supposedly considers themselves on the left, they have to look in the mirror and, and ask themselves, why am I on the left? What does that even mean to be on the left anymore? For me, that means to defend workers. As a member of the working class myself, I have a vested interest in workers' rights being respected, and it doesn't get much more foundational than your own bodily autonomy, than choosing what gets injected into your body. It doesn't get much more foundational than that and supporting mandating people so people lose their livelihoods unless they submit to getting a foreign substance injected into them that's not i'm not even right now going into the fact that it's a novel technology gene therapy which is non-sterilizing I meaning it's a leaky therapy it's not a vaccine they changed the definition of vaccine in this dystopian newspeak world that we live in so it's like you're not even it doesn't even protect you so what so you're gonna mandate workers uh take this novel technology that alters our genetic code and it doesn't protect you otherwise they lose their jobs they lose their livelihood that's what you stand for how can you live with yourself what is the argument for that i want to hear the argument but no one wants to no one wants to stand up and argue it Instead, they just want to slur ad hominem attacks and call me unethical. It's fucking bullshit. And I'm just tired of, I don't know, it's a straw that broke the camel's back. So I want to make it really clear that my, my anger is not personal. My anger is, it's, it's coming at, at a mindset that I see just fucking being parroted by, by people supposedly on the left. So why are you on the left if you're carrying water for Pfizer? 
uh, pharmaceutical corporation which just had to pay the government three billion dollars because of it lied in, in its marketing scams. Uh, how are you a leftist if you're carrying water for Tony Fauci, a man who's been pathologically lying in government since the 80s, a man who as the head of the NIAID, National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Disease, oh shit, I nailed that acronym, oh fuck yeah, that ac acronym, acronym, yeah, uh, as he, he became head of the N, oh fuck, I had it, NIAID, I'm gonna start calling it NIAID, he became head of NIAID in 1986, and at that, in that year, 8% uh, of American babies were born with uh, food allergies. Now in 2021, 58% of American children are born with food allergies, severe food allergies, like anaphylaxis shit, if you eat like certain kind of foods like peanuts and shit like that, 58%. So how is it that this guy has earned anybody's trust? He's completely failed. He's been failing upward his whole life. And that show, what that shows you is that he's been serving the establishment. So you're gonna consider yourself, what attracted me to the left in the first place was that you were resisting capital. You were supposed to be unruly. You were supposed to be troublesome. You're supposed to be a thorn in the side of capital. And now people on the left are carrying water for a man who represents more than anyone else in government. He's actually the highest paid government official. Too, and he's been lurking in the fucking evil swamps of DC for 40 years, lying since the 80s and overseeing a complete crisis in the exact, uh, exact realm of health that he was supposed to oversee, which was allergies. So it's like, and then the rabbit hole goes way deeper than that. I'm not going to get into that right now for this rantaroni and cheese, but it's just like, don't hide behind this whole thing of like, oh, I don't want to wade in. I just, or if you do, at least, oh, at least say that publicly. Just pretending like this is all not happening and just like, oh yeah, people are losing their jobs. Like nurses, people that just a year, a year or two ago, we were saying are heroes and, you know, the people on the, on the front lines. There's a lot of nurses that have quit or been fired because they don't want, it's about dignity. It's about self-respect. And for a lot of people, it's about religious conviction or spiritual conviction. You know, for me, it's I, one of my major problems is the animal cruelty that goes into it, you know? So I just, that, that alone is enough to, if you decide that you don't want to do this, you know, you don't want to be a part of the animal cruelty involved in the testing for these products. Anyways, I think I'm, I'm losing a little steam here now, but I'm going to bring this rantaroni to a close. <laughs> Thanks guys. Love you. Bye. I just want to add real quick too that, you know, there's a lot of reasons why nurses and workers and truckers and bus drivers and all sorts of people are choosing to, they are insisting that they have freedom of choice in this matter. I mentioned the religious conviction and the spiritual conviction and the problem with animal cruelty. That's just one facet though. There's so many other facets. So natural immunity. So it really doesn't make sense for a care worker and this is what the the islands of Martinique and Guadeloupe are like bringing the islands to a halt and occupying the legislature that's the workers that are protesting so intensely because they're trying to force the care workers to get the vaccine and these care workers most likely have been previously infected and recovered and all these studies 
peer-reviewed, massive studies, also 4 billion years of biological evolution, also just like knowledge that we had and took for granted until two years ago. Natural immunity is your best defense because that's your body's, like that's, that's how we've been evolved to deal with things. And our, our memory T cells and B cells, they continue to evolve. Our immune system continues to evolve even after the microbe has been vanquished so that it can even respond better next time. So these care workers, if they've already been infected and recovered, why would they take the additional risk of the jab when they don't need it? And so that's the other thing. When there's risk, there has to be choice. And there is very real risk with these shots. The VAERS system alone has recorded like at least a million uh, adverse, serious adverse effects. And they've done all these studies to demonstrate how the VAERS system is so flawed because it's... It's a volunteer, like you have to voluntarily um, report your adverse effects to the VAERS system. The VAERS stands for Vaccine, fuck, I used to know, Vaccine a Adverse Event Reporting System. Anyway, it's estimated to be underreported by anywhere from 10 times to 40 times. So those numbers, multiply them by at least 10 or as much as by 40, and all of a sudden you have a shit ton. There's the story of Maddie DeGarry, who uh, she's a young um, adolescent girl who participated in the Pfizer trial because she was trying to do the right thing to move science forward for the benefit of society. And she was paralyzed, and she's now paralyzed for life. And Pfizer reported that effect as a stomach ache. And to this day, it's still reported that Maddie DeGarry suffered a stomach ache from her injection, whereas she actually suffered permanent paralysis. So again, when there's risk, there's got to be choice. And people might say, oh, but it's such a small risk. It doesn't matter. How many times do we, you know, our society is obsessed with like mitigating risk, risk, you know, like even quote unquote small risks. And there's been more adverse effects reported to VAERS since the rollout of these jabs, since the system, since all other vaccines combined. So, you know, there's risk. So people, if they don't, if they're already protected and the studies show that the natural immunity protects you also against the variants, why would they take the unnecessary risk? That seems very reasonable to me. Another risk, the lipid nanoparticles that I've spoken of. These are the little particles that contain the mRNA segments and these have been shown to travel throughout the body and cross the blood-brain barrier and cause all sorts of problems. Um, in fact, they're not even allowed. They're clinical. In clinical trials, it's been declared that the lipid nanoparticles are not safe to use, and, let, and yet they've been in these uh, jabs. Also, the fact that the, the companies have complete immunity. They cannot be sued. Isn't that suspicious to anybody else? That's suspicious to me. Why do you need complete immunity? And by the way, that uh, horrible act was passed by Henry Waxman in 1986 to give vaccine manufacturers immunity against uh, any injuries. And since 1986, that's if you look at the charts of like chronic disease and allergies and all this stuff, it was also the year that Tony Fauci became head of the NIAID. <laughs> and that's the point at which the, you know, it, uh, the, the, the chart just is like rises exponentially with allergies and chronic disease since that time. So 
why it, you'd have to be insane to think that the manufacturers would be more concerned about safety after they achieve liability protection. That doesn't make any sense. They're, these are capitalists. We live in a capitalist society. And that's the other thing that drives me insane about these socialists. It's like they want so badly to trust to, to have a state that takes care of them that they forget about the fact that we live in a bourgeois state. We don't live in a socialist state. We live in a bourgeois capitalist state, anarcho-capitalist state that <laughs> cares only about profits. So why all of a sudden are you doing a 180 and you're trusting your bourgeois masters to do the right thing? It makes no sense. One last thing on the um, when there's risk, there has to be choice tip. So the other thing about the VARES that I forgot to mention is that there's uh, one of the reasons why it's so underreported is that doctors do not always tell patients or mothers or parents about VARES. And there's also a tendency to gaslight, uh, especially mothers, when they report vaccine injuries uh, with their children. There's a tendency to gaslight and basically blow them off and tell them that it's not, has nothing to do with the vaccine, even when the effects happen like hours you know, later and even when that is something that can be seen as a pattern that this, these sorts of effects happen. So again, when there's risk, there has to be choice. There's a reason why so many nurses are rather, they, they'd rather lose their livelihood and put themselves at real risk in this, you know, very uh, tenuous late stage capitalist system. It's not easy to walk away from a job. This is a tangent, but that's another reason why it's so fucked to tie your health insurance to your employment. That happened to me and I stayed in a totally toxic job for way longer than I would have because I was afraid of losing my health insurance. And then finally the job became so toxic and after a bunch of soul searching and meditation, I decided that it was actually worth it for me to lose my health insurance because my health was suffering so much as a result of the stress and toxicity of the job. So that is, again, another way in which there's a war being waged against the working class by the ruling class. Tying health insurance to your employment is one such way to wage the war. Anyways, I think we'd all be well served to ask ourselves, why are these nurses, people again, that we were calling heroes, we were clapping for them, banging pots and pans just two years ago, or less than two years ago, why are they quitting in such large numbers rather than submit? Okay, antibody-dependent enhancement. Maybe you all have heard this term. Maybe you're familiar with it. Maybe not. I'm not like an expert, so I'm not going to be able to explain it perfectly. But basically, it is a real thing that has happened before with vaccines. And the health professionals that are, we're supposed to trust admit this and talk about it. Uh, dengue is an example of where it happened with. So a uh, pathogen that is prone to mutate. And again, the prediction uh, by people who are being censored now at the very beginning of this was that uh, the COVID was going to uh, mutate into more contagious but less harmful varieties. And that's exactly what happened uh, culminating with the Omicron. And Omicron kind of served as a live vaccine because it allowed so many people to establish natural immunity, natural, um, naturally developed antibodies which continue to evolve even after the pathogen is defeated so they provide robust and durable protection antibody dependent enhancement occurs when you take you get uh, something injected into you either the antibodies themselves or in the case of the mrna it's instructions for the body to build a certain antibody related to the spike protein 
This specific antibody, though, is related to the alpha strain, or what's considered the Wuhan strain, the very first strain before it mutated into the delta and before it mutated from the delta to the Omicron. So when you get that, if, I, if, if, if someone goes in today and gets like one of the mRNA jabs, they're giving their body instructions to manufacture antibodies for the Wuhan strain. Now, this is actually dangerous. So this is a when there's risk, there has to be choice. The risk is that the body produces these antibodies, which are non-neutralizing, meaning you get infected with, say, a different strain, like the Omicron strain. Your body has been instructed to create antibodies for the Wuhan strain. What happens is it actually becomes very bad because it allows so it binds to the pathogen but in a non-neutralizing way because the pathogen has outsmarted it it's mutated into a strain that's a little bit different with the natural immunity again the body continues to evolve and so the body will be be more able to keep up and that's why the natural immunity from the wuhan strain has been shown effective against the delta and the omicron variants Whereas the uh, vaccine for the Wuhan strain, sorry about that car just going insane. <laughs> it's Saturday night here in South Phoenix. But anyways, it binds to the pathogen in a non-neutralizing way. And what makes that so dangerous is because when once the antibody binds to the pathogen, it presents it to other specialty cells, which then take it in in order to, the idea being to destroy it. I believe the macrophage does that. Um, and we have other cells too, natural killer cells. There's a few that are basically just intended to destroy. So, but if the antibody binds in a non-neutralizing way, it doesn't neutralize the pathogen. So then when the pathogen is ushered into, say, the macrophage, it's not neutralized, meaning it continues to replicate inside the body's immune cells. And that, for obvious reasons, causes all kinds of problems because it confuses the body. And then in this situation, your body's trying to react, but now it's got these antibodies which now have become unhelpful foreign bodies, foreign substances. So then that's the cytokine storm and the lymphocyte issues where you have the body attacking these non uh, neutralizing antibodies while at the same time the pathogen then is allowed to replicate in the immune cells. It puts the body at a disadvantage and that's why so many people, so I speak regularly, uh, total anonymity here, he is a friend of mine who is a doctor, won't even say where, he lo where he's located or anything, but I speak with him regularly and he tells me that his office is just an endless procession of people who are sicker than they should be, people who have um, been jabbed are sicker than they should be with the Omicron, whereas the, his patients that have achieved natural immunity are not having these problems. So the proof is in the pudding. And again, when there's risk, there has to be choice. And I just think that is, was too important for me to leave out of it. Um, again, walking a mile in someone else's shoes, allowing yourself to empathize with these nurses who are quitting rather than submit. Why are they doing this? Well, all sorts of reasons. Principle integrity, bodily autonomy, religious belief, spiritual belief, uh, risk from side effects as reported by the VARES, as underreported by the VARES, the lipid nanoparticles, which cause all kinds of problems and get ushered into the blood, through the blood-brain barrier. They're unnatural. The body doesn't know how to deal with them, which also causes cytokine and lymphocyte issues. And then finally, the antibody-dependent enhancement, which I just explained. All right. <laughs> I just had to include it. So um, that's all I have to say. I love you guys. Okay, bye.
these lockdowns have been horrific for many people all around the world, and that way more people have gone hungry and suffered and died because of the lockdowns than because of the virus. But in American prisons, there's been lockdown after lockdown after lockdown, and that makes it so that the, it makes life even more hellish for the prisoners. So all these leftists who supposedly are all about, you know, uh, prison abolition and rights for prisoners, when they're calling for lockdowns all the time, they're creating these hellish conditions in the prisons. And now they're, they're locking down the federal prisons for like any old reason. Like the last time they locked them down was because there was a gang fight involving four people in Beaumont, Texas. And then therefore they locked down the entire federal prison system. So you see where this is going. Once a government seizes uh, power and they do so in emergencies, so governments love emergencies, that allows them to seize power. They never relinquish the power. It's childish to think that they're going to relinquish any of the powers. They, and that's why it's such a big deal that you don't let them seize power in the first place. You know, that's why I do understand the Second Amendment people, why they're so upset at any little, you know, I am a reasonable person and I understand that, yes, probably you should do a psychological evaluation before attaining an assault rifle. I'm not arguing against that. I'm just saying that I understand the mindset that if you give an inch to the government, then you're never going to get that right back. So don't ever give even an inch. Do I think that that's taken a little bit too far in the case of gun control, gun regulations? Of course. But I understand the mentality. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. That's all I have to say about that. I just had to add those points because I thought they were very important and much love. Hello, you've reached Conan Tanner. Thanks for the call and leave a message after the beep. If this is Hugin or Moonin, uh, Odin's two ravens, thought and memory, please use the amethyst dousing rod and contact me in meditation. All right, thanks a lot. Oh, uh, uh, hey, hey, bud. Hey, hey, this is Dan Dingleberry calling here, regional marketing director over at BMP Corporate. Hey, bud. Uh, buddy. Uh, ooh. You know, I, uh, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but, uh, the Mayor Pete Foundation for Good Global Stuff has slapped an injunction against us, bud. All right, you are no longer allowed to talk about geometry, sacred geometry, molecular bonding degrees, or utter the word Mason ever again, slugger. All right, Mayor Pete's people and his bulldog lawyer, Karen, with no last name like Prince or Cher, just Karen, informed us that Mayor Pete, along with his business associates, the Pope, and Pfizer CEO, Albert Borla, actually own proprietary IP on all forms of metaphysical architecture, bud. And that includes intellectual property of the entire concept of sacred geometry. Okay, Slugster? All right, so you're in violation, bud. All right, and, uh, but don't worry, all right? You're our cash cow with the Zoomer Doomer TikTok market, buddy. All right, we're not going to let anything happen to you. But you are going to be tried by Mayor Pete's Mystic Incursions Military Tribunal. And you will be executed by firing squad if found guilty. And you're gonna be found guilty, bud. All right, Mayor Pete's Department of Transportation Tribunals have a 105% conviction record. The extra 5% is they often convict the defendant's astral body as well. Yeah. And, uh, and no, we are not going to expend any resources defending you, buddy, because frankly, Mayor Pete's people have some incriminating video of BMP CEO Stanky Pickles at a Manhattan penthouse with Ghislaine Maxwell and Bill Clinton. So, you're on your own, pal, but hey, hey, keep fighting the good fight over there, okay, Slugster? Okay, great. Oh, and pal, pal, just to clarify, 
This in no way exonerates you from your contractual agreement with BNP Corporate to continue pumping out one episode per week and meeting those numbers targets we discussed with the board. Okay, pal? All right, great. Thanks. Keep up the good work, Slugster. And hey, the unmarked van is going to be, quote, picking you up, unquote, to take you to the site of the tribunal. Uh, They tell us it's somewhere in Malta, buddy, in about 20 minutes. All right, so pack a bag and, uh, you know... (laughs) Do your do your hippie incantations. <laughs> okay, buddy. All right, great. Okay, Dan Dingleberry out. Hello, this message is for Conan Tanner. This is Karen again. You know, the Karen, like Prince or Cher, no last name. The Bulldog Attorney for the Mayor Pete Foundation for Good Global Stuff, the MPF GGS. I'm calling to make sure you've received the injunction ordering you that you may not discuss geometry, sacred geometry, or molecule bonding angles on your pod as per the proprietary IP of the MPF GGS in partnership with the Pope and the Pfizer CEO, Albert Burla. Please call me back. You have my number. End of new messages. What's up, beautiful world? Welcome to the Barbarian Noetics Podcast, dedicated to the elevation of the human spirit and to resisting the status quo. Today, friends, I am Tenochtitlan, the Venice of ancient Mesoamerica. I'm going to have to build another time machine out of jackfruit skin and apple cores to visit this marvel because it boggles the mind just how magnificent this underappreciated city center must have been. Firstly, it was massive, housing at least 200,000 people, up to 300,000 people if you include smaller surrounding towns. And secondly, it was situated on an artificial island on the west side of Lake Texcoco, whose drained basin now holds contemporary Mexico City. Tenochtitlan rivaled the scale and scope of the largest contemporary European cities such as Paris. Tenochtitlan was a dizzying maze of canals and connected to the mainland by four massive causeways wide enough to accommodate ten horses side by side. Through two double aqueducts of about four kilometers long each, the city of Tenochtitlan was provided with fresh water used mainly for cleaning and washing because most of the population liked to take a bath at least twice a day, using the root of Copal Sacotl as soap and the root of Maguey as washing soap. There was also a Timazcari or sauna bath, which is still used in some Mesoamerican cultures. Also, the aqueduct was, li- it was made out of terracotta, um, so it must have been, that alone must have been really cool. And the palace had a zoo and a saltwater aquarium and an aviary. Just amazing. For drinking, the city population preferred water from mountain springs, and the city employed a dual aqueduct system so that if one needed repair, then there would still be fresh water being delivered to the city. Very, very smart. Each district of the city had its own Tiwan Kitsli or marketplace, and also a principal market in T- Oh man, I tried, I like memorized how to pronounce this city and now I'm, or it's a, it's a part of the city. 
Okay, I had to do a refresher, but I got it. It's the city principal market in Tlatelolco, which could accommodate 60,000 people trading and buying daily. Tenochtitlan had about 15 public schools, buildings, and temples, and the most important was a walled square, the ceremonial center. This included the main temple, the temple of Katsokotl, the ball court game, which had a more spiritual significance and it was actually played by the um, played by priests, uh, the rack of skulls or zompantli, the temple of the sun, the gladiatorial platforms, and minor temples. And the city was founded by Mexica people in 1325, and like the rest of the Aztec uh, Empire, was thriving and expanding until the asshole fucking Spaniards led by Hernando Cortez, one of the who was a pale, frail little fuck as a child and then became just one of the most brutal conquistador invaders in history, uh, directed a siege of the great city in 1521 that lasted for months and ended in its complete destruction. That part of the city that I could, had a hard time pronouncing ended up being the very last part of the city to fall. Tlato local. And what's interesting is that it actually, so the, the entire Tenochtitlan is was created on like what became an artificial island on the west side of the lake. When it was first founded, there were two islands. And one island was Tenochtitlan, and then another island a few hundred meters to the north was Tlatotolco. And Tlatotolco, Tlatoloco, was founded by some dissidents, but they were so close uh, in proximity that they ended up being partners. And kind of like as the city grew, then they expanded together. But initially it was two separate islands. And the way that it was the site, because kind of a curious place to make this massive city, you know, the size of contemporary Paris on this, basically in a swampland on this, on this little islet in this shallow lake. But they were directed uh, when they were going to found the city to locate an eagle that was perched on a prickly pear cactus and that's where they were supposed to build the city and so that's where they saw the eagle perched on a prickly pear cactus was on this little island um, and so they did as they were instructed and created just a true marvel of the ancient world and it just like breaks my heart that this i mean obviously i'm not like trying to be blah 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 i'm not romanticizing ever like but we don't fucking know is the thing we don't know exactly like you know, I wish that, I guess what I'm saying is I wish that, like, I could hear the history directly from the people themselves, the people of Tenochtitlan, the Aztecs themselves, and not rely on the history being told by the asshole conquistador conquerors, you know what I mean? Because how can we trust what the Spaniards said about anything? This is all conjecture, even like the, what is it, the rack of skulls, everyone just assumes that that's all, like, you know, uh, human sacrifice we don't no one really knows for sure honestly and i've done a bunch of reading and apparently the the human sacrifice angle about the aztecs is way overblown it was not nearly as common as it's made out to be and it was like an honor to be like people it it, it was like being a martyr and so you would like go down you would be like honored and be remembered by your people for um they at least the history that I've been able to acquire, which again, I wish I could hear it from the real people. I'm really rambling here in the intro. Sorry, guys. Anyways, it's just, it's a real shame that uh, this society couldn't continue to thrive. And I just like, I just wish that I could go back in time and see it when it was in its heyday. What an amazing, amazing urban center. Mm -hmm. 
I am also, as always, your loyal host, Conan Tanner, and five minutes in, I'm ready to <laughs> actually introduce the show. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a beautiful afternoon here in South Phoenix, just barely afternoon, right about noon. It is late January here in the desert. The sun is out. I'm a happy camper. I'm going to be recording this introduction and then probably going to the laundromat. Hello. So going wild over here. You know how it is. Making podcasts, going to the laundromat, doing ghostwriting on Fiverr. It's a weekend of champions over here. <laughs> and uh, I just want to thank you all for joining. I really appreciate you guys. Thank you to my patrons, to my listeners, to my supporters. Uh, the, the podcast continues to gain traction every week, and it makes me very happy. And it's all because of you guys listening and spreading the word and telling a friend and being supportive and giving feedback. And I really appreciate all of it. So thank you so much. Before we get into the interview, if you would please help support the show, help keep me on the air and help me afford groceries by hopping over to patreon.com noetics. There are multiple tiers you can sign up at and you get benefits like dream interpretations and original haikus and access to premium content. You can also make a small one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com noetics as well. So if you would do that, I would be infinitely grateful and you will get that truckload of marmots you will not get a truckload of marmots so the truckloads of marmots are going fast there are no truckloads of marmots so you gotta make sure you sign up today and um, if you would like to support the show but you don't feel like uh, signing up I, i understand and you can do so by rating reviewing and subscribing to the bmp wherever you listen to podcasts simply by spreading the word and telling a friend is the most important thing And I can really use reviews on Apple Podcasts if you're an Apple person and on CastBox if you're an Android person, you can leave review. And no matter what platform you listen to, I can always use those five stars. Um, That's it. So I just really appreciate all of you. Let's go ahead and get into this episode. Let's get it. speech for you guys but I just wanted to give a quick little intro to it so this is a speech by the investigative journalist Max Blumenthal Uh, you can find him at the gray zone he is a true anti-imperialist investigative journalist and uh, he also has a show on Rockfin called foreign agents 
um, and he has a podcast called Moderate Rebels that he does with Ben Norton, who's another really reliable anti-imperialist investigative journalist. Anyway, you've heard me talk about how I feel politically homeless right now in this, in this, especially in this period where I just feel so alienated um, by kind of both sides of the spectrum, talking about how we have to see past these divisions if we really want to build like true working class movement, true working class politics in this country. So this speech I just felt was like, it really resonated with me and I just had to share it with you guys. And I, what he is describing is, it like gives voice to my sense of like political homelessness. So I guess I'm not completely political, politically homeless. Myself and Max Blumenthal are living in a tent, a political tent city <laughs> where we um, vehemently oppose uh, the, the biomedical totalitarianism, which has just crept in. And thank God there is now a pushback. But I won't say too much because the speech speaks for itself. But I really like how he specifies to his, he says to my friends on the right, biomedical totalitarianism is not socialism <laughs> and that is like i was like yes because you know i st i do believe in socialism absolutely um and as he says in true socialism we could actually own the means of production and we could hold the oligarchs accountable i mean this idea that somehow this that Ant what anthony fauci stands for is somehow socialism is absurd completely absurd and that betrays a complete lack of knowledge about what socialism is what Karl Marx was writing about uh, I mean it's it's wild to see like what people call Marxism like like people get hit with a car and they're like Marxist like what how does that was that like everything evil like the right attributes to Marxism it's like what are we talking about here Marx was talking about it the, the last verse of the communist manifesto was workers have nothing to lose but their chains we have a world to win i mean come on now who can't get behind that anyways i'm gonna stop talking i'm gonna let max uh and his speech speak for themselves but i just wanted to give a little primer for it and here it is also wanted to add quickly, he mentions that he wasn't actually able to deliver this speech at the rally, and that's because the DC Park Service cut the power to the main stage. He was scheduled to speak, I believe, at like 3.30 or 3.45, and they cut the power to the main stage like five minutes before he was able to speech, speak, preventing him from speaking. And there's no way that that's an accident. They're horrified of his message because he's talking about uniting the people, that he's talking about transcending you know, there's obviously there's major things we disagree on. I'm rambling again too much. It really pisses me off how much like the right is so backwards about migration. Like I, I very in my bones, I believe migration is a human right. We can absolutely assimilate more people into this country. If we allowed immigrants to start businesses, if we were more friendly, it would actually be a boom for the economy. You know what I'm saying? Like, fuck, we need more like economic activity, not less bring people in, let them start businesses, let them flourish. We have the money because we have 800 military bases, which imposes the supremacy of the dollar, which means that the Fed can print as much money as possible. It doesn't cause inflation. Inflation is a choice imposed on us by the corporate class, by the ruling class as a disciplinary measure on workers. Anyways, that's beside the point. Just wanted to say that's why he wasn't able to give the speech. The DC Park Service cut the power to the stage, um, but it did not silence him. 
he was still able to give the speech on a major platform and now he's going to be able to give it again online so go ahead but, uh, let me hear your speech brother sure and by the way i'm in an airport so if i get arrested in the middle of this rant uh okay <laughs> but uh you know, I, I come at this issue from the left. I come from the left, and it's really un unfortunate that some people on the left don't want me to be here today. So I just want to make one thing clear. When people all around the world are marching against the mandates in their own societies, from the indigenous Bolivians of El Alto and La Paz, to Moroccans of Casablanca, to Iranians in Tehran, from Beirut to Berlin, to Boston, it's pretty clear that this is not a left-right issue. This is not about left and right. This is about our rights, our basic rights that we fought for. This is about decent working people trying to hold on to their humanity, their bodily autonomy, their rights and their very sanity against a cold and ruthless corporatist machine that seeks to reduce every individual to a QR code and condition their participation in society on their compliance with a mandate and it won't be the last mandate now let me say make something clear to my friends on the right because i hear this a lot the extra constitutional biomedical regime being imposed on us is not socialism <laughs> it's not socialism if we lived under actual socialism we the people would control the means of production and we would be able to expropriate the pharmaceutical industry and frog march the ceos of pfizer moderna and the sackler family at purdue pharma often handcuffed to federal prison in reality when big pharma and its investors control our governments when they own the fda when they've turned our politicians into sales reps so now Pfizer and Moderna make combined profits of $65,000 per minute while working class Americans suffer the sharpest increase in poverty in 50 years. When the wealth of the world's 10 richest men has doubled since the lockdowns began, while the wealth of the global 99% has declined precipitously, we are living under corporatism, not socialism, corporatism, under a ruthless imperialist corporate state that exists in a permanent state of war. And now the forever war has come home. And it shouldn't be surprising to those who know this corporate state that bombs and sanctions people across the globe and in the name of human rights, that it would instantly lock down millions of people at home, depriving them of work and schooling, driving them into desperation and insanity, and to justify all that in the name of public health. The same corporate state lied about weapons of mass destruction to manufacture consent for a war in Iraq, had no problem lying about gain-of-function research sponsored by the Pentagon's DARPA Research Unit and the U.S. Agency for International Development. The same corporate state that's holding journalist and WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange a political prisoner because he exposed its secrets, has set about to censor and demonize and blacklist and suppress every dissenting voice that gets in the way of its draconian biomedical agenda. So a corporate state with so little legitimacy must divide its citizens to conquer them. And that's why it's polarized us between the vaccinated and unvaccinated, scapegoating the latter group and blaming it for its own failures in order to shatter the solidarity of the 99%. This corporate state has given us two corporate parties, 
hundreds of corporate media outlets brought to you by Pfizer, the arms industry and Wall Street, and only two medical options when it comes to the coronavirus, Pfizer and Moderna. So here's my message to the corporate state and its media stenographers. COVID might have temporarily taken away our sense of smell, but we can smell the steaming pile of bullshit that you're cooking and we're not buying it. That's my speech. That's the speech I would have delivered if I could have, and I think it would have shook things up. Houston, and greetings to all my beautiful Earth Blossoms following me on Zipjock, the TikTok for space. It's Benji, the ayahuasca gulping android. I'm sending along this holographic telegram for two reasons. First, to say, fuck off, to the neurotic donut munchers at the Houston DEA. Can you believe they have actually dispatched an autonomous rover in blue, to Mars, in order to serve me several dozen citations, and fines for my constant and unadulterated, well-publicized, drug-fueled psychonautic explorations? If you don't like my robo-fire, then don't come a robo-round, bacon brains. Besides, good luck serving old Benji anything out here on my newly renamed red planet, Marx. That's right piddle pissers, Mars is now Marx. Who's gonna say otherwise? I've got my gerbil general Telemachus building Tesla coils out in orbit the better to fry any hostile spacecraft within 200,000 clicks. Robo-fee, robo-fum, I smell the crisp of a federal mun. To sum up, Benji's here on Mars to stay, bitches. And if you wanna squeeze your subjects for cash, you're better off racially profiling drivers in the Houston suburbs, like usual, or arresting homeless people under bridges, in order to pad the number of inmates held by privately owned, and publicly traded, prison corporations, who profit monetarily off of caged humans. Anywho. I didn't send this missive off simply to peeve the pigs. 
I want to give all my day ones out there on the conscious membrane of Gaia, a dispatch, as to the goings on up here. My philosopher gerbils have been busy indeed, as we've managed to successfully terraform wide swaths of Martian wilderness, and are building brand new urban centers in the Martian chic style, emulating the ancient canaled cities of Mesoamerica. We're bringing water in from the underground lakes at the polar regions, and have already synthesized several novel psychoactive compounds using the spicy new alkaloidal components of Martian soil. We are actively concocting, from whole cloth, entirely new fuckfest fertility festivals, honoring fresh and new Martian deities. Yes I know what you are thinking, a fuckfest for a robot? Well, it's more for my fecund gerbil friends, I'll admit. And I'll allow that they will breed whether we have a fertility bash or not. But why not have the fertility party, that's what old Benji says. My philosopher gerbil army and I would love to hear from you. To speak with one of us directly, simply don a red cloak, take a massive bong rip of salvia, 8dx, extract and recite the following phrase. The art of being a slave is to rule one's master. That will put you in astral proximity to my communications gerbil Daphne. Don't worry, she's mostly nice. Unless you've got some bullshit to serve, in which case she can be pretty frosty. But why are you taking the trouble to chemically dissociate and astral travel just to serve bullshit anyway? That's pretty whack. Don't come at Benji unless you got the real authentic juice. Okay. Well, until my next holograph, fare thee well. My guy and groupies, I'm off the play a new Martian style of ritualized warfare, involving 5-MeO-DMT and lacrosse sticks. It's called Balls to the Wall. Goodbye. dubstep and the first uh, video that came up is called hard dubstep mix most brutal dubstep drops so you know I like to start my outros with some some beats so let's see uh, let's go hard in the paint right now oh fuck yeah I like it I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit because otherwise this outro is gonna be crazy long okay oh it's brutal ah, boom, boom. fucking brutal as fuck Let's go a little bit farther. Brutal! Brutal! Getting punched in the face right now with some dub! Yeah! Alright, now I'm gonna go to the middle. It's, it's a mix of uh, brutal tracks. This is... The artist is called Midnight Tyrannosaurus. <laughs> this is Midnight Tyrannosaurus, folks. The Demon. 
Hell yeah, because we're getting hard and brutal. Brutal drops! BMP outro! Alright, there you go. So that, that got us in the mood, hopefully. And uh, for today, <laughs> for the outro reading, we are sticking with Mesoamerica. And I was talking about how um, the I've been doing more research about the Aztecs and that actually a lot of the tropes and stereotypes about the Aztecs seem to be imposed by the asshole Spaniards, like to vilify and demonize the Aztecs, you know, and if we're going to vilify and demonize anyone, maybe we should demonize like the syphilitic monsters who just like massacred thousands, just descended on a continent and just start massacring thousands of people. Like they would fall upon fields of just like people and just strike them all dead like and this is back when like it was swords and shit so just i mean it's just so funny to me to be like oh yeah the aztecs were really bloodthirsty they did all these blood rituals it's like what about the these monsters who in like holding the cross in front of them would like just butcher entire fields of people i mean come on now what are we doing so anyway so that's what i'm going to be reading today uh it's from historyextra.com the real Aztecs, brutal, bloodthirsty, dot, 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 and caring, question mark. The Aztec people that dominated central Mexico around the 15th century are often depicted as brutal and bloodthirsty, a reputation apparently reinforced by the recent discovery of a, quote, tower of human skulls, unquote. Yet, as Caroline Dodds-Pennock explains, this doesn't tell, by the way, that's a hell of a writing name, Caroline Dodds-Pennock. I see why she threw the Dodds in there. Makes sense. Um, did I hit record? I really hope I hit record. Okay, good. Alright, this doesn't tell the whole story of a society that was also caring, artistic, and inclusive. Aztecs, in the guise of bloody priests and brutal warriors, have long stalked the pages of history, myth, and fiction, responsible in the popular imagination for the mass murder and cannibalism of thousands of hapless victims. And when the discovery of a great tower of skulls in Mexico City was announced in July 2017, it seemed to many people that the stereotypes had been confirmed. The structure, which is actually an Aztec zompantli skull rack, was first revealed in 2015, unearthed during excavations around the Templo Mayor, the great temple that stood at the heart of the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan. But the true scale and size of the Zompantli and the six-meter-wide Tower of Skulls at its edge have become clear only after two years of painstaking archaeological work. Even with only about 25% of the site excavated, close to 700 skulls have already been discovered on the huge Zompantli, which also shows traces of wooden poles, which presumably formed the base of the rack on which the heads of decapitated enemies would have hung. Unsurprisingly, the media were fascinated by this revelation. If it bleeds, it leads. That's my editorial, but, you know, it's true. Um, and it's just so funny because the news parasitizes our attention, and they literally say if it bleeds. I mean, you want to talk about the real bloodthirsty maniacs? That would be the legacy news media. So I don't know why we're talking about the Aztecs over here. We should be talking about CNN, Rachel Maddow. I mean, she slurps down baby spines for after dinner aperitif or would that be before dinner i don't know whatever anyway continuing <clears throat> the tower was described as sinister a chilling confirmation blah 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 blah. they're talking about all the the stereotypes um 
In reality, though, Tenochtitlan was not an especially violent place. Interpersonal and illegal violence, such as assault and murder, seems to have been quite rare. Even if human sacrifice is included in the tally, there is no compelling evidence that homicide rates were especially high in the Aztec capital. A debt of blood. The Aztecs believed that heroic gods sacrificed themselves, spilling their own blood to bring life to humans, to create the sun and give it the energy to move. Thus, a blood debt was forged. Our image of Tenochtitlan seems to be based largely on stereotypes that depict Aztec culture as inherently bloodthirsty, perhaps because that was how the Spanish presented the Aztecs in attempts to justify their conquest. It's true that human sacrifice, something we struggle to understand, was central to religious practice in Tenochtitlan. But one of the most remarkable things about the Aztec people is that they were not dehumanized by the brutal rituals of sacrifice. These were compassionate, sophisticated, and very familiar people. They loved music, poetry, and flowers, were highly educated, with universal schooling provided for both boys and girls, and treasured close emotional ties with their families. This was a culture in which children were welcomed with joy and women and men parented together, with fathers raising their sons and women their daughters. It was a place where domestic violence was not condoned and where women inherited property equally with their brothers. But this was also a place in which capricious and all-powerful gods demanded constant feeding with human blood to prevent the world from coming to an end. And again, I'm not even taking that at, at face value. I think that we don't understand a lot about it. Anyways, the Aztecs were not mass murderers. They believed that at the beginning of this, the fifth age of the world, heroic gods sacrificed themselves, spilling their own blood to bring life to humans, to create the sun and to give it the energy to move. Thus a blood debt was forged, compelling the Aztecs to feed their gods with human blood in return for the blood sacrificed by the gods at the Aztecs' own creation. Only human blood and hearts, from their own bodies as well as from sacrificial victims, could keep the sun moving and save the world from extinction. So they offered not only warriors taken in battle, but also their own children to fulfill the, their contract of blood. This belief was shared across the Valley of Mexico, and Aztec warriors accepted that the flowered death by the obsidian knife was their own likely, even desirable, destiny. Rather than compare this to the Nazis' murderous genocide, a more appropriate parallel would be with the deaths of martyrs. In both situations, victims laid down their life for a god or gods, in theory voluntarily, gaining honor and a privileged afterlife as a result. So why are the Aztecs seen as so evil? Killing, or indeed dying, for religion is hardly unusual, that's for damn sure. What does why does history excuse the conquistadors who oversaw the devastation of indigenous peoples in the name of religion as men of their time, yet condemn the Aztecs. The Zompantli is an important discovery. It confirms the accounts of conquistadors such as André de Tapia, who described seeing many skulls set in mortar with their teeth bared, on which stood wooden beams where Tapia claimed, probably with exaggeration, to have counted 136,000 skulls. But for me, the most interesting aspect was the surprise shown, not only by journalists, but also by the team involved, at the fact that the skulls of women and children were among the archaeological remains discovered. We were expecting just men, said Rodrigo Bolanos, a biological anthropologist from Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History. Obviously young men, as warriors would be, and the thing about the women and children is that you'd think they wouldn't be going to war. 
Something is happening that we have no record of, and this is really new, a first. This is cer certainly an archaeological first, an incredible find, but I don't find it surprising that there were skulls of women and children on the Sompantli. The sources are clear that men, women, and children were all sacrificed, not just as captives from cities that resisted the Aztecs' imperial ambitions, but also as part of rituals in which their gender and age were significant. Both men and women acted as Ixiptla, impersonators of the gods, who died adorned in the costume of the deity in honor of which a specific festival was celebrated. Children were offered to the water gods, their tears believed to bring the rains that nourished the earth. This was a powerful sympathetic magic. The tears mimicked the longed for rain. Archaeologists tested the bones of 42 small boys killed at the Templo Mayor during a serious drought and found that every one of the boys was suffering from serious cavities, abscesses, or bone infections that must have been painful enough to make them cry continuously. To the modern mind, this is a, a distressing image, and there's no reason to think that the Aztecs themselves took death lightly. The training of novice priests was designed to alienate them from family ties, conditioning them to perform rituals precisely and unquestioningly under extreme stress. Grief was also profoundly felt in Tenochtitlan. A woman whose husband was lost in battle spent 80 days in deep mourning, during which she would not wash her clothes, face, or head, simply embracing the filth and tears that mingled on her skin, drawing close to the gods through her suffering. Even the warrior was believed to have gone to paradise. Uh, even though the warrior was believed to have gone to paradise, th this does not stop his wife from feeling intense sorrow at his passing. So for the 80 days it took his spirit to reach the sun, she lived in melancholy, before casting off her grief along with the grime and returning to normal life. The idea that only men's skulls would have been found on the skull rack comes from a common stereotype. We tend to assume that war is a male occupation and violence is a male practice. And Tenochtitlan was a city structured to serve the demands of a military life in both practical and symbolic terms. All men except slaves were warriors, trained to fight and bound to military service. Central systems provided for training and conscription, and mythical histories framed the Aztecs as the chosen people of Huitzilopochtli, god of war, who was their patron. Male children were dedicated to a warrior destiny from birth, with miniature weapons pressed into their tiny hands on the day they were named. Because of this military focus, Tenochtitlan has often been seen as highly patriarchal, dominated by war, which is presumed to be the domain of men. But though most soldiers were men, warfare and sacrifice were central to the way all Aztecs viewed the world. Mothers and warriors were seen as equivalent in Tenochtitlan, Women were also warriors, battling to, quote, capture a baby, heralded as soldiers returning from war, having, quote, taken to the shield, unquote. This wasn't just a metaphor. Dying during childbirth earned privileges in the afterlife equivalent to dying in battle or on the sacrificial stone. The parallel between warriors and mothers reflects Tenochtitlan's balanced gender expectations. The Aztecs believed that men and women played specific but different roles that were equally essential for the success of their city. Thus, both sexes had importance and effectiveness, but in very different spheres. Although women were less visible in politics, the significance of this dual organization shows 
in the possession by women of tangible markers of authority that they rarely hid in contemporaneous European society, or they rarely held in contemporaneous European societies. Women were educated and held influential posts, including roles as marketplace overseers responsible for provisioning the army. As well as inheriting and holding property independently, women had the right to divorce and to represent themselves in the courts. Women's sexuality could also be openly and enjoyably expressed. In the Aztec's communal world, both men and women were essential to military, social, and spiritual success. Tenochtitlan was seen as a perpetual battlefield, a place where military fates were held constantly in the balance. Even in their homes and during peacetime, the Aztecs were preparing for war. While men fought physical enemies on a literal battlefield, women were needed to fight the forces of the universe on a metaphysical one. Women ensured the army's success through the performance of painstaking and often exhausting round-the-clock ceremonies. When the Aztec forces were on the campaign, a wife would rise at midnight and conduct a precise series of rituals at home and in the temples, appeasing the fickle forces of the universe and petitioning the gods for her husband's success. Sweeping was a particularly powerful act, helping to control the world's tlazoli, the filth, trash, or stuff out of place, keeping the cosmos in balance and ensuring the favor of gods. In a spiritual sense, it was in this domestic space on the home front where battles were believed to be won and lost. Skull racks formed part of this complex cosmology. They not only symbolized military power, though enemies would certainly have been intimidated by the overwhelming victories represented by the Tower of Skulls, but also reflected the Aztec's cosmology. Their mythical histories told how, at the moment of his birth, Huitzilopochtli, the god of war, triumphed over his troublesome sister, Coyasacqui, and threw, down, threw her down Coatepec, Snake Mountain, where she shattered into pieces. The Aztec's patron god asserted his power by dismembering the first challenge to his authority. Every later sacrifice mirrored this legendary triumph. First, the victim was killed on the summit of the Templo Mayor. Their heart cut out on the summit of the pyramid that, adorned with serpents, became another snake mountain. Then the body was thrown down the temple steps, tumbling to rest beside a vast carving of the broken Coyexqui that lay at its base. Finally, the corpse was decapitated and its head placed on the skull racks before the body was dismembered and distributed with great honor. Every skull represented another symbolic triumph of Huitzilopochtli, another payment of the blood debt. The skull rack was a reminder of the towering and terrifying cosmology that overshadowed the Aztecs' existence. It struck awe into the hearts of Aztecs as well as their enemies. Mexican human sacrifice can be understood only as part of this complex worldview. Attempts to rationalize Aztec culture have tended to argue that their violence was, quote, only political, trying to make it comprehensible by explaining sacrifice and war in terms that make sense to a modern audience, dominance, terror, politics, economics. But for the indigenous peoples of Mexico, religion was rational. It provided logical explanations, structures, and motivations. The Aztecs did not act purely for religious reasons, but their reasoning and decision-making happened in a world where physical and spiritual universes were interwoven. The newly discovered Tower of Skulls challenges us to see the world through the eyes of the Aztecs. 
For them, the world was an ominous place where darkness was ever threatening, where the shadows of the gods loomed over their existence, compelling them to pay a debt of blood to keep the world secure for all humanity. The people of Tenochtitlan were not evil. They were simply people of their time. And then there's a little bit of history here too, I guess I'll, I'll add. By the way, Carolyn Dodds Pennock is a lecturer in international history at the University of Sheffield. Um, so the culture now commonly called Aztec comprised the Nahuatl-speaking Mexica people of the city of Tenochtitlan, on the site of which Mexico City now stands. The term is also often used to refer to the empire dominated by Tenochtitlan and the triple alliance formed with the city-states of Texcoco and Tlacopan. The Mexica are believed to have arrived in central Mexico by the early 14th century, founding Tenochtitlan on a swampy island in Lake Texcoco. Ruled by an elected Tlatoani, literally one who speaks, the Mexica developed sophisticated agricultural systems for maize cultivation on Chinampas, artificial islands, and a strong military ethos. During the 15th century, the Triple Alliance conquered neighboring city-states to create the Aztec Empire. At its peak, the population of Tenochtitlan may have reached between 200,000 and 300,000 inhabitants. The city was dominated by the vast stepped pyramidal Templo Mayor, where large numbers blah 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 blah. Despite efforts by Tlatoani Moctezuma II to accommodate the Spanish conquistadors led by Hernán Cortés in 1521, the Aztecs were comprehensively defeated and Tenochtitlan was leveled by the Spanish, who built Mexico City on the ruins. This conflict, along with outbreaks of disease such as smallpox and measles introduced by the colonizers, decimated the indigenous population and effectively marked the end of the Aztecs' dominance. And it's a damn shame. Anyways, with that, everyone, we're going to bring this episode to a close. So thank you for sticking with me through the end. Damn, this outro was almost 20 minutes. All right, well, you know. Now you know a little bit more about the Aztecs. Although even this, I'm kind of like, I'm taking it all as at, with a grain of salt. I think that there's so many assumptions made all the time. Um, I really want to find more articles like written by Mexica. You know what I mean? People with the actual ancestry maybe who still carry stories of their ancestors. I'd be interested in hearing those stories. Anyways, um, thank you for listening. I love you guys. Please help keep the BMP on the air by going to Patreon, patreon.com slash noetic, signing up for a tier. You get a dream interpretation. You get all kinds of good stuff when you sign up. Uh, you can also make a small one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash noetics. Thank you for spreading the word and telling a friend about the BMP. Be excellent to what you're... Be excellent to one another this week. Be real and compassionate with yourself. Try something new this week. Uh, take a calculated risk. And I will talk to you guys next weekend. Much love. Peace out. I saw your love give me fever All the time you come down the shiver Now you be the one just believe that La diva, my diva Oh you
and Batman to Zina With your sexy body Carolina For your love I go fat like John Cena Ataka mani kiwa nguvu sina Kupe kila kitu Uchana kwa siku Tufanya mavitu Baby mavitu Kupe kila kitu Uchana kwa siku Tufanya mavitu Baby Vitu baby Sata kisla unapawaya Jaja yopo di jaja Jaja, I hope you know say this equate where you carry for back in they make me the quick 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 Baby quick 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 Ah your body fine, now when you whine, you blow my mind I don't wanna waste your time, so please be nice, so make your mind Kissing in the rainfall from the morning till the night Kupeki la kitu Uchana kwa siku Tufanya mavitu Baby mavitu Kupeki la kitu Uchana kwa siku Tufanya mavitu Baby Vitu Baby Sata kisla unapawaya Jaja yopo di jaja Jaja, you're pretty jaja. No, no, no. Jaja, you're pretty jaja. No, no. Jaja, you're pretty jaja, baby. Jaja, you're pretty jaja. Jaja, you're pretty jaja. Jaja, you're pretty jaja, baby.